0: Hello, Greg. Hello, Dwayne. How are you? I'm better than I deserve. Are you ready to talk about CJR?
1: Yes, I'm ready to talk about CJR and in particular uh, kind of the trial process, plea bargaining, uh, what we call the trial penalty, um, all sorts of stuff today. So, yeah, excited uh, excited to be discussing this.
0: Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is criminal justice reform, specifically the trial process. It was recorded on May 7th, 2020. Here's who's joining the podcast in this installment to explain the community vision for the trial process.
1: Hi, uh, so my name is Greg Glod. I am the uh, Criminal Justice uh, Policy Fellow. Uh, Prior to this position, I was the uh, Director of State Initiatives at Ride on Crime, which is a uh, think tank primarily located in Austin, Texas, Uh, but we started doing uh, national criminal justice work. So I was there for about uh, five years. Uh, Prior to that, I was a uh, practicing attorney in uh, Maryland, uh, generally in the Annapolis, Baltimore uh, jurisdictions. Uh, I did criminal defense, uh, family law, civil litigation, a little bit of everything. Uh, Prior to that, I was also a, a law clerk at the trial level in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, I've worked on the Hill, uh, did a little bit of work at the General Assembly in Maryland. Um, and so, yeah, I've uh, kind of seen the uh, criminal justice system from the advocacy side, the litigator side, the court side. Um, so a lot of experience in a lot of different areas, uh, particularly on that trial process and, and what actually happens, uh, you know, during during that procedure.
0: So let's let's get right into uh, just talking about what our community vision is. For the trial process, and and maybe if you want to throw in, you know, talk about what's wrong with it and the vision that we have for what good looks like.
1: Yeah, certainly. So um, you, you talk about trial, and it's kind of a uh, an, an a foreign term for a lot of um, litigators. You know, not many uh, you know, cases actually get trial, even on the civil side, and worse on the. Uh, on the criminal side, I think at, you know, at the state level, it's about 95% of uh, all state cases uh, end up in a plea bargaining, dismissal, diversion, something like that. I think it's about 97 at the federal level. And so most cases plea out, most cases are dismissed, uh, most cases never get uh, to that point. And, and plea bargaining and, and things of that nature are, are necessary to kind of, you know, keep the process going. I mean, you look at as many cases as a prosecutor uh, will, will get on his uh, desk, uh, you know, in, in a week, uh, let alone a year. Um, there's going to be necessary to exercise a lot of these, these processes. If you went to trial and everything, we would we'd still be uh, backlogged on cases from the '80s at this point, uh, trying to get them all scheduled up. So it's definitely a necessary process, and it's also a, a benefit uh, to defend in a lot of areas where you know you have a case. You know, the evidence is pretty strong. Um, hey, you know, you have this drug charge. The drugs are on you. Um, we're going to, you know, offer you, you know, you could get six years, we can offer you two, um, or, you know, we'll give you probation. You know, these are, these are, and you don't have to pay, you know, the, the length, you know, the expensive uh, defense fees and then trial fees and all these other things. So, uh, you know, it's attractive, uh, you know, thing for for a lot of folks, um, and it makes sense. And so a, a lot of cases should be being let out and expedited in that manner, and it's a good way to go. However, the way that our criminal justice system um, is laid out, and these are all the issues that we talk about with mandatory minimums and uh, you know, pretrial process and overprim and all these things, it allows such wide discretion on the prosecutor's side to bring what charges he wants, how many years he wants to charge you with, um, where at some point the plea bargaining process does not become a kind of holistic cooperation, it becomes much more coercive. Um, and it's really, it's not a glitch, it's a function. And so a lot of these different laws that we talked about, like I said, mandatory minimums and things, it allows for prosecutors to have um, major leverage over the case, what they can charge and whatnot to really coerce a lot of these pleas, uh, um, you know, through, uh, you know, the judge is not involved in these areas. Um, you know, the defense attorney has a little say on how these goes. And so it really gives a lot of power to the government. And we've seen that kind of tick off slowly and slowly, particularly since the mid nineties when we had a lot of these mandatory minimum cases, and then for minimum sentencing uh procedures kind of uh, roll through at the federal level and at the state level.
0: Is this where you we get into the uh the idea or is this where we get into the the problem of I think it's called like charge stacking? Yeah, yeah. So stacking's
1: a, a huge thing. So um stacking kind of refers to so you Say, for, for instance, we did three controlled buys. So You had a confidential informant or an undercover officer, and like three drug buys with someone. Um, and so you did those within within a week. So you do the first buy, you let a couple of days go, you do the second buy, you do the third buy, and then you charge them for three separate instances, and then you're able to stack those on it. So now you could potentially, depending on what the rules and laws say, you could be a third-time habitual offender for essentially what amounts to the same conduct. And there's no government intervention. But the whole point of the criminal justice system, the correction system, is saying, you committed an offense, we caught you, we're intervening, this is who you are, and now we're going to try to, you know, readjust what your behavior at this point. But by putting someone as a third-time offender, um, you know, after essentially what's the same, you know, activity and whatever underlying factors laid in there, lack of job, you know, money, education, whatever else, we're no longer able to intervene at that point as like a first-time person. We have to come back at it from this way. And the reason that prosecutors and law enforcement want to do that is because they're able to coerce whatever they want within the process. So, um, you know, there's charge stacking like that. Uh, Lori Laughlin is the you know the college um, admission scandals case, that's a great example of charge stacking. So, the defense said, "I'm not taking the plea like a lot of the other defendants in that in that case." And then you saw additional charges being brought on them that. Have to deal with certain innocuous things. So we have so many criminal laws in the books that the same activity can be charged, you know, 15 different ways. And so if you put something in the U.S. mail, now that's all wire fraud and mail tampering and all these different things that come with the U.S. mail, um, you know, you can, so you can get all these different things that essentially are charging um, the same exact activity, but in 15 different manners where they each have their own little criminal penalty. And if you want to stack those on top of each other, you know, you could be looking at, you know. 40 years uh, for, for something that, who, you know, layman looks like, well, that's not as, you know, uh, potentially, you know, damaging as someone who is committing an aggravated assault or a murder. You know, a lot of these areas where the charges and, and things are much less and much more narrow because they're kind of, you know, regular criminal code types of things. So, yeah, no, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Um, and so you'll, you'll see, I mean, 35 different charges for, you know, one, you know, criminal activity, but it really is getting made able to charge in a lot of different ways.
0: You know, I'm I'm researching this book, uh, Influence, and I've talked about this before. It's a fantastic book, but there's something in there called The Contrast Theory, and it's used by salesmen a lot. And something you said just now made me think about that, because what they say in here is when you go into the example they use, you go in to buy a suit, the salesman's probably going to take you to a $3,000 suit, right? And they'll say, this suit would look great on you. It's perfect. You'll sit there and you'll look at the suit and you think, wow, this is a nice suit. I wouldn't mind having this. How much is it? They say $3,000. I don't know about you. I mean, I'm, I, I can't afford a $3,000 suit. So I will look that at that and say, advice. wow, that is a yeah. nice suit. Um, yeah. what else do you have? And then they'll show me maybe, you know, a $750 suit, right? And in my mind, $750 is a lot less than $3,000 because we're we hardwired, and the book talks about this, we're hardwired to see a big number, but then a smaller number is going to seem a lot smaller than it would before. If they'd come at us first with a $750 suit and then showed us a $150 suit, $150 would seem a lot less than seven fifty just because of that contrast theory. It it goes back to you pick up something really heavy and then try to pick up something light, it's going to seem lighter than it is. The reason I was thinking about this is because I'm I'm trying to get in inside the mind of a defendant who is sitting in a room and the prosecutor says, We have thirty different charges against you, and if you're found guilty, you're going to spend north of forty years in prison. Or, you can take the plea bargain, and only take five years in prison. That same that same mentality starts going on there. Forty to five, five seems a lot less, and it's more attractive to take the plea bargain.
1: Yeah, uh, and Dwayne, um, I'm definitely stealing that analogy from you uh, when I talk about this in the future because that is that is absolutely perfect, and I've seen it. You know, when I would do mediations and things like that on, on civil cases for, you know, minor, you know, car active and stuff like that, someone, you know, sprains their arm and their defense attorney comes in there with a $500,000 settlement agreement, and then they come back and we start negotiating. it gets down to, you know, you know where it should, you know, close to where it should be, you know, 100 or whatever, something like that. And they're like, well, yeah, yeah we got to take that. That's such a bargain. Um, and the same thing happens in the criminal process. It really is true. When you have these high, crazy numbers and you're like, that's what I'm facing, Even if I feel that I can beat this case or I am innocent, which happens much more often than people um, really realize that, you know, innocent people do plead guilty, uh, you know, it it becomes much more attractive um, at that point. And so no, that's a a perfect analogy for what's going on um, with plea bargaining or criminal justice system in the U.S. because of, um, you know, what criminal laws are on the books and how we're able to charge and stack and all these different things that, uh, you know, the government's able to do to an individual when they do face uh, criminal charges.
0: So why, why are they doing it then? I mean, I, I'm trying to get inside the, the mind of a prosecutor. Is it is it simply they just want to close cases and they want a good win rate? Or is this – maybe I shouldn't get into the mind of a prosecutor and ask you to explain why every prosecutor does what they do. But it it would seem like this has stopped being a little bit about justice and more about the win-loss column. And maybe I'm wrong.
1: No, no. no. I think there's definitely something to that. And I don't want to – I mean – Prosecutors are are good people. Yeah. I mean, every 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 you know job has their bad actors. You know, there's law enforcement officers that are not good, but by and large, they're 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 good people trying to do their job um, as best as they can, and they have the same you know desires, needs, and things that we have with our you know with our work. You know, so me as a policy analyst, you know, I want to do a good job and change things from a criminal justice standpoint. I also want to make my bosses happy. You know, I also want to put food on the table. I want to get home safely. Um, I want to get work off my desk. Um, I want to give things to other things. So, you know, it's the same push and pull that these line prosecutors have that we all do with our job. Unfortunately, with their position, um, it, it, there's much more, uh, you know, on the line than what, you know, what you and I do. Uh, people's, um, you know, freedom, people's property rights, um, you know, sometimes death and life are, are involved and so um, the stakes are just much higher but you know a lot of the things that they do like you said it's some of it is just to get things off the desk i mean these are innocuous drug possession cases and things like that we don't need to go to trial for these we keep moving this along um and we need that for our judicial system to actually function so there there's that point there's also like you said the win-loss area you know they don't they don't uh, advance people up in their position if they keep losing cases or things get you know dismissed so um, you know, a lot of the incentive structure within DA's um, offices is on wins and losses, and getting as many pleas as you can. If you've ever seen, you know, someone run for district attorney or something like that, a lot of the times on their one, you know, their their flyers or whatever else will say like, "I had a 99% conviction rate" or, or whatever else. And so those numbers mean something um, to those incentive structures in the system itself. Uh, some of it's trying to get bigger fish, and so you'll get a guy on, you know, a drug buy, and it's like, well, hey. I could charge you with these amount of things, or we can have you cooperate with the government you can give us everything that you have, and then we'll drop it down. And actually at the federal system, that's a major component of downward departure. So we think of mandatory minimums, they're mandatory. They're mandatory until the government tells says that they're not mandatory anymore if you cooperate with them. So you can get a 10 year sentence, but if you if you give and rat on these other four people, you know, we're gonna give you a plea to drop that down, and that mandatory minimum no longer um, you know, applies. And so, one of the things about mandatory minimums that we we're supposed to have is this consistency amongst cases because judges were all over the place. They were giving these people over here, that, and that people over here. And a lot of it actually had a lot of discriminatory impact on, you know, lower socioeconomic um, areas, uh, minority communities, and things like that. So, we we're trying to remove a lot of that stuff. All we did was just shift it under the darkness of the prosecutor and the darkness of the plea bargaining agreement rather than actually an open court. Um, and so, like you said, I mean, there, there, this is not to, you know, step on or, you know, really, um, bury prosecutors or, you know, criticize, but there, I mean, there are some issues there, but a lot of it is just how the incentive structure works and what they're trying to do from a law enforcement purpose and how this kind of moves
0: forward. So what does good look like for, for the trial process? What is it that through the lens of our community vision that we think the trial process should look like? And how is that different than what we have now?
1: Well, you know, a lot of this stuff is not actually even really looking at, like, the trial, the plea bargaining itself and everything. It's the entire criminal justice system. This is the effects from what we have, like, kind of built up. And so when you look at pretrial issues when we're, you know, jailing individuals for not being able to afford bail and they don't, you know, have some sort of public safety risk or flight risk. If you're sitting in jail, you're damn well more likely to uh, to plea out, and that happens quite a bit. You know, prosecutors are able to delay cases a lot of times, and so you're just sitting in jail, sitting in jail. Hey, you can get out today if you plea out on it. So that happens quite a bit, and so you know, the, our jail population, everything going on pretrial, that has a lot to do with that. Not using citations in lieu of arrest, so booking people, throwing people in jail, and so now they're more likely to plea. Um, you know, the speedy trial rules, and so we have rules in our in our system It's constitutionally required that you have a speedy trial. Those can get delayed quite a bit, and so having robust speedy trial rules that don't allow for just elongated delays are, are another area. New Jersey just recently reformed their speedy trial rules and have allowed for cases to expedite further, so you actually don't feel like you're waiting for years and years and years pre-trial, um, which happens quite a bit. Um, you know, And so you're less likely to plea if you feel that you have a strong case or you're actually innocent. But if you're sitting and potentially looking at a couple of years in jail waiting your trial, you're more likely to play out. And so these are all these different things that have people funnel into that plea bargaining system because their other rights as an accused are essentially undermined by the way that the process is. Mandatory minimums. You're able to have a 10-year sentence that used to have discretion from the judge. Now you know, hey, it's going to be 20 years that I'm getting charged with unless I plea down to something different. So that forces more people to plea. Um, Discovery. Um, A lot of different states, Virginia just passed a great bill on on discovery. But, you know, prosecutors will play games sometimes with what evidence they have and when they need to present it. So you need to give exculpatory evidence to the defense, but a lot of times with the timing on that, you know, you'll slow play it if you think that you can get a plea over here. And so sometimes, you know, right before trial, even during trial, some of that exculpatory evidence will come out. Um, And so it's all these different things in the criminal justice system that kind of lead to a plea bargaining system rather than looking at, hey, how do we fix that? It's really the system itself that forces a lot of these decisions to be made. And so from an actual like looking at what plea bargaining and and the trial penalty and everything else, uh, Utah County actually this year, uh, the district attorney there said, "If if our prosecutor charges the highest charge, that thing's not getting dismissed unless the judge, the prosecutor and defense attorney all agree that that can get dismissed out. Um, and then we're also going to vet cases at the front end much more clearly, so we're not overcharging for things unless we feel that we actually have a strong case. Um, I'm very interested to see how that all works um, there. I, you know, I've seen defense attorneys in the Utah area, you know, criticize the the plan, saying this seems like a good thing. We're going to have more trials, and everything else, but this may you know hinder our effect to give a reduced sentence or some sort of less time to an individual because prosecutors going to be less likely plea out. And so there are these types of things that we can try to reform on the plea bargaining side, but it really is all the other stuff, um, you know, that from our POV standpoint is looking at from a criminal justice system wise that could really make the most impact on plea bargaining rather than trying to like reform it from the system within, change the system itself. And that will be much more alleviated.
0: You know, I think about the unintended consequences uh, of actions and and I'm glad you brought up the different different uh, systems that are that are contributing to this. And one thing that I I liked about uh, the way that the criminal justice reform pi is structured when it was first explained to me is the each there each stage there's a stage to the to the whole process. And we need to address problems in each stage. So we're talking about the the trial process now. But what I'm seeing and hearing from you is so much of the problems in the trial process stem from unintended consequences of other steps involved here going all the way back to the fact that overcriminalization it and and correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like we have overcriminalized so much that we've put this pressure on the trial process which incentivizes getting things out of the way so that we can deal with with more serious crimes and because of that that desire to get things out of the way we have incentivized prosecutors than to push things towards a plea, which has incentivized them to make it as appealing as possible to the defendant to accept that plea, which leads to things like stacking and and coercion and intimidation, that sort of thing. Am I missing something there? Or is is it all just like a a downhill of of bad decisions or or even well-intended decisions in the past that have resulted in the mess we have today.
1: Oh, I, yeah, and I think you're right. And candidly, really, I think a lot of this is, you know, you called it unintended consequences. I think a lot of it isn't a consequence. I, I said it earlier, you know, this isn't a glitch, it's function. Um, you know, there is, this is the reason the government has pushed for a lot of these different types of reforms um, throughout the years that have allowed for stacking and, and other things and have pushed back on uh, reductions or safety valves and, and other stuff from from this process. Because it does incentivize people to plea out or cooperate with the government, um, and so this this kind of like pushes that. Actually, I'll, I'll I'll retract that. It actually doesn't incentivize any cooperation with the government when mandatory minimums are reduced. We actually see the same type of cooperation, but that's a that's a different podcast for another day. I won't get into that. so <laughs> I won't correct that. Um, but no, I, I mean the, the, a lot of this is a function of it. And so when we're when we're looking at like what are the reforms to do, it's, it's the system. It's not this tiny little sliver. And so like you said, it's a downhill of bad decisions moving forward. Yeah, I, I know in every state, you know, you get dozens of these little boutique crimes. Like I know in Texas, there's a there's a crime for thrashing a pecan tree, which means climbing up the pecan tree and stealing the pecan. I mean, we have a theft statute. Do we really need to stack another thrashing of pecan tree on top of, you know, someone stealing something from someone else's property? Uh, probably not. Um, you know, there's like 12 felonies for oysters in uh, in Texas as well. You know, a lot of those have just have to deal with general theft or trespassers, stuff like that, where we don't need these additional charges to come through. But what they do is allows prosecutors to come out and say, we're going to stack all these on you, and this is going to expedite it, or you're cooperate with us, or we're, we're going to be able to control. So just like everything else, this is about government control more than really actually finding what justice is. Um, and a lot of the ways with, you know, with plea bargaining and cooperation to the government, um, you know, you're cooperating with someone who has done much more serious and violent things that we would see as much more of a detriment to public safety than the individual that they're actually ratting out, or the person that they're ratting out is at a higher level and it's much more prestigious uh, for that district attorney's office to to get that that person. I was just watching a, a documentary on um, some of the uh, NCAA uh, cheating scandal with Adidas, um, you know, the shoe company, and and they had these kind of we call bag men that would pay uh, individual players or their you know, their parents or something else. And um, a lot of the bad things that were going on were at this lower level, but really they were trying to flip people to get the, you know, the head coaches, you know, the Rick Peams of the world and everyone else, when they really didn't have much to do with it. And once they weren't able to get these higher guys, they really hammered on the lower people. But if they were able to get the bigger fish, um, those were the people that we weren't really concerned about. It was much more the lower people that were actually handing us money. So there's, there's a lot of that going on where um, you know, the actual public safety and effectiveness of justice and who's actually being held responsible for certain things kind of goes out the window when you start looking at, well, that guy can get that guy, but that guy can't get that guy. So we'll go after the guy who doesn't have information and we'll just try to cooperate with the person that it does have the information which is probably not the best way to effectuate justice we should be looking at what things that we're actually afraid of these individuals and you know not looking at people that were technically maybe mad at or have done lesser offenses let's just carry out justice in a, in a in a fair way that increases public safety
0: that does seem to be kind of a simple goal let's just carry out justice i don't know it it doesn't seem like a lot of the times and maybe you know maybe i shouldn't say a lot of the times but maybe the more the more uh Top, You know, the headline grabbing stories are, are, are about what you're talking about. We have this person, but we're trying to get the next person. Um, and that's that doesn't sound like justice to me. That sounds like headline grabbing. Maybe yeah,
1: um, I know everyone's watched Tiger King uh, these days and you're looking at a couple of those folks that are still doing interviews. You uh, read that documentary. You're like, how are you not in prison? Well, they they were cooperating, um, and so the folks that are cooperating, they kind of, you know, a lot of the criminal activity that was going on uh, gets brushed to the side While the you know the big fish, um, you know, at the top, uh, sometimes you know, depending on what they do, they they're the ones that get hammered. In. So it really is who has the information, who cooperates first. They're going to get rewarded, and those that don't, um, you know, the, the the hammers coming. So, um, you know, the, the Jeff Lowe's of the world, uh, and then his and his goons, uh, you know, get to walk around scot free while you know Tiger King, who is not a good person either, um, is behind bars right now. And so that that's that's the way it goes.
0: Yeah. Well, is there anything else about this process we need to discuss? Something you wanted to say before before we take off that we haven't covered yet?
1: No, you know, I, I think really, like I said. You know, people ask about what is the you know the best reform for plea bargaining or the trial penalty or, or how do we do this? And really, I don't see much of a a way other than if you make some sort of very rigid standard where we just don't even have a prosecutor anymore, It's just a judge uh, dealing with that. And you know, I'm curious to see what's going to happen in Utah with that. I think you know the, uh, the, you know it's well intended. Uh, we'll see how it actually plays out. Um, very curious to see how that goes. But like I said, this is a uh, an effect of how we have handled our criminal justice system from here on out. And so when you want to deal with the trial penalty and plea bargaining, you need to look at over-criminalization, um, you need to look at pre-trial reform, you need to look at speedy trial reform, uh, discovery reform, um, mandatory minimum sentences. These are the things that are actually going to alleviate the problem rather than kind of trying to, um, you know, look at this one little thing. It's like trying to, you know, if uh, an effect of uh, some sort of, uh, you know, cancer or something, or Let's let's go with COVID. So you you get a cough from it, and you know we're, we shouldn't be focusing on like rubitus or cough suppressants. We need to start looking at a vaccine. Um, and so while all those things are good and they potentially can help with some of the you know the an instant symptoms right there, we really need to start looking at this holistically, and then we don't have to worry about the cough anymore. And so these are the types of things that we need to start thinking about with the trial penalty. It's it's not a it's not a, a cause is effect. So um, I'll leave you with that.
0: Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's Top Priority, please email them to me at toppriority@afphq.org. at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.